BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. A new biography, Gilded Youth, turns the focus onto royal upbringings. Prince Harry and Meghan Markle are to be evicted from their UK home and King Charles gets dragged into politics. I'm Jack Royston, Newsweek's Chief Royal Correspondent, and this is Newsweek's Royal Report. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the show, Tom Quinn. Your book, Gilded Youth, looks not just at royal children, but specifically at parenting styles. So, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you started on this project? Yes, well, my interest in the royals goes back to the 1980s when, quite by chance, I worked on a magazine which had a very old-fashioned office overlooking Windsor Great Park. And I met the Queen's gamekeeper at that time. And he was so fascinating. His wife looked after the corgis in their tiny cottage, which had been built specially in the grounds of Windsor um, Castle for this gamekeeper, when he retired, the Queen just built him a small house and his wife looked after the court. And it was all so interesting that I interviewed him for a magazine that I worked for at the time. And he said, um, as often happens with these things, he said, oh, you need to talk to. So he gave me the underkeeper's name. And I interviewed wow. him. Then I interviewed some domestic servants. And I realized that when you talk to the what used to be referred to as the below stairs staff, you found out really what was going on. So that's how I got interested. And then after doing a couple of books on various aspects of the royal family, I noticed that there was something very odd about the way that royal parents behave towards their children and the style of upbringing that the children experience. And the key thing that occurred to me before I started on this book was that in many ways, the way royal children are brought up hasn't changed much in six or 700 years. It's extraordinary how in the royal family, slow change is actually, it's glacial, it's so slow. And I just thought the way that they do it now is very damaging too, the way it's been done, especially over the last, say, two centuries, the Georgian period, the Victorian period, and the, the, the 20th century, so damaging. And yet they don't change the system. They don't change the way they do it. And it's impossible not to listen to you say that and kind of hear Prince Harry's voice ringing in the background with a, a lot of what he said in his book, but also in interviews over the past few years. Do you basically kind of agree with his take on royal upbringings that, you know, he talked he talked about genetic pain. I think he kind of meant generational trauma, problems being passed down from one generation to the next. I think it was especially difficult for Harry because um, not only did he have paid staff looking after him from as early as he can remember anything. And I think having paid staff looking up there, it's contingent. They can change. They can get sacked. You d- it's very difficult to make an emotional attachment. So he d- he had that very typical um, royal upbringing, which I think is damaging. Um, but then on top of that, with his mother dying at, at the age of 12, um, I, I think, you know, he was doubly damaged. And I think but I think he's also aware, um, especially since 
meeting Meghan Markle that actually there is this kind of, I mean, he described it as a sort of genetic damage, but it's actually, he's referring to the very thing that I'm referring to. And it's especially true if you're a spare, mm. you know, the title of his book, because you get, you get to be part of this family where you can't go and have your own career and your own life or not very easily. You can't get a job as a, a journalist or a teacher or a doctor. You can't, you're, you're trapped in the gilded cage, but you don't have a role in the way that William has a role. I mean, Princess Margaret, um, she had the same problem. Elizabeth had the role mm. and, and Margaret didn't. So when you combine the strange um, upbringing that they have with the fact that you're a spare, you don't have a job, but you can't get another job outside the royal family. It's extremely damaging. Um, and I think also Harry suffered, as his brother did, from the fact that in many ways his parents' marriage was, in a sense, the last of the sort of dynastic. It was an arranged marriage, effectively. And that, too, was very damaging because these very unsuited people were pushed together for dynastic reasons um, and the result was was awful. So I, I think Harry on that is Harry's absolutely right. And a lot is obviously said about the impact of Diana's death on Prince Harry, especially psychologically. I mean, do you? It sounds like you think though that even while Diana was alive, there was perhaps something in the way that Harry was brought up that was perhaps traumatic. I think that's true. I mean, if you just take, for example, even before the divorce and and then his mother's death, even before that. He was living in a world where Diana wanted him to be part of, you know, going to McDonald's, wearing baseball hats, going to the cinema, doing all this stuff. And then he would go back to he, he would be taken by Charles to Sandringham to shoot pheasants and wear tweed breeks. Um, and in, in Scotland, he would be taken out to shoot to stalk, you know, to shoot red deer. So Charles represented a world that really, for most of us, vanished 700 years ago, a world in which royal children were taught to hunt because that was a that was a training for warfare where they would actually have to lead their army into battle. So so and then with their mother, they got so it's a very kind of split world that they grew up in. And I think also after the divorce and the divorce came about because the marriage was, wasn't was a love match at all. It was a dynastic. They were pushed together for dynastic reasons. After the divorce, it was even worse, that split, you know, the, the hunting, shooting with with and tweeds with Charles and the, the modern world with Diana. And then on top of that, people think, I mean, Diana, I'm sure, was a very loving mother, but she too had grown up because what the royals do with child rearing, the, the aristocracy, the English aristocracy is all, always done. So she had a very damaged childhood where she had a stream of nannies, none of whom stayed for very long. So she was looking for love as an adult too. And because she'd grown up with paid staff looking after the children for a lot of the time, Harry was still looked after by paid staff while Diana searched, as it were, for love. And, you know, mm. apparently he said to her once, Mummy, you have a lot of boyfriends, don't you? <laughs> you know, because he, he, he was aware that, you know, she was living her life while he was being looked after by paid staff. So, you know, I think when you put all that together, you realise that, you know, these are people, as, as Philip Larkin said, you know, people are handing on misery from one generation to the next. And just to be really clear, so when you talk about paid staff, I mean, a lot of people might have what we would term au pairs or nannies who kind of help out but i suppose what you're talking about is really virtual surrogate parents uh, relationships with staff members that 
almost replace the source, the primary source of comfort for members of the royal family. And then suddenly that's wrenched away when someone leaves, which I think is actually, to be fair to him, is what Charles talks about in his own um, book that he did with Jonathan Dimbleby in 1994. Yeah, absolutely right. It's happened with every generation. It happened... Um, with Charles, I mean, they're, they're, these the paid staff. It's not like an au pair where you know they do two or three hours a day of childcare, or when the parents are at work. It's much more. If you take um, if you take Charles and Anne and Edward um, and Andrew, each day they were taken to see their parents for half an hour. They were dressed formally, taken for half an hour, and then taken away again. And that was the system that. Uh, um, Edward VIII and his brother had Edward VII and his siblings. You, you, however far back you go, it was always that they had. A, it's almost like having an audience. <laughs> the children mm-hmm. would have an audience with their parents, and the rest of the time they would have these paid staff. And some of the paid staff were completely mad. I mean, um, <laughs> Diana, for example, tell, tells a wonderful story of when she was with her father and the nanny, one of a, a great string of nannies, which she complained bitterly about came running into the room with a knife, shout, attacked her father, and then shouted to the river, to the river, and ran out of the house. Wow. So you've got, you know, you've got these people at the other end of the of the spectrum, though, interestingly, both Elizabeth I and Elizabeth II, they had nannies who became lifelong surrogate mothers. If you take Elizabeth II, um Someone called Bobo MacDonald, who looked after her from when she was about three, um, was still living, was her probably her closest friend 70, 80 years later. In fact, Elizabeth II looked after Bobo MacDonald while she was dying. She had her own set of apartments in Buckingham Palace. She didn't, she wasn't allowed to do any work. And so she stayed part for the whole of, of, of Elizabeth's life. So I think that helped Elizabeth in a way that, um, you know, but it was just luck that this woman happened to be prepared to devote her whole life and really was a surrogate mother where there was no danger that she would ever leave. Whereas Diana herself, um, someone like Edward VIII had a string of, of, of nannies and they, they weren't lucky enough to have a Bobo McDonald. So how important is somebody like Tiggy Legbork, now Tiggy Pettifer in the lives of William and Harry, do you think? Well, I think uh, I think Tegula, but she was um, she was pretty good. She was um, she was someone that that was part of the family circle, and I think she was a very warm character. But the fact that she had a life, you know, beyond very clearly had a life away from them. She wasn't going to devote themselves in the same way that a mother would or a father. And I think you know you're always aware of that. I think children are always aware. You, I mean, you could, someone said to me that. In some senses, um, royal children have always been in care. And we know how damaging that is. By in care, I mean, you know, like in foster homes or care homes. Wow. Because they, they they don't have, even when there's a tiggy leg, but it's not the same as, as um, Bobo McDonald, who never married, who never had her own children, whose whole life was devoted to Elizabeth II. It's not the same. You know, she had her own life, as all these nannies do. So I, I think... 
however however well it's done i mean now they all use norland nannies you know this very they always say the norland agency it's the it's the eton of, of <laughs> a nanny training so they're professionals they're not people who are recommended by some other aristocrat you know they are professionals but it's still you know you're going to know as you grow up that this is not your parent, however lovely they are. And, you know, it can have other other strange complications. For example, there was a uh, one of the nannies who looked after um, uh, William and Harry when they were very young. Diana noticed that, that um, this particular nanny was becoming very, very popular with the two boys. And she began to feel that they preferred the nanny to her. So the nanny was sacked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Very tough indeed. And you mentioned how tough royal upbringings are on despair, particularly. Do you think there is any solution to that problem? Or do you think that this will continue being a recurring feature um, for, for the next generation? I mean, we've got you know Prince George right now growing up with Charlotte and Louis. Um, will they have a better time? I think um, the, the, the current youngest generation will have a better time. I think partly you can see it in the previous generation. Harry was allowed to make a love match. And William was allowed to make a love match. I mean, there's no question that the idea that um, a, a prince, you know, like Harry, would have been allowed to marry. I and mean, we know someone who'd been divorced, an American divorcee. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you know, that had echoes that frightened everyone in the royal family, except for the fact they knew that. If it was a love match, they needed to try that because what they tried before, when they pushed two people together because they they were from the right background, you know, they were suitably aristocratic or royal, that that wasn't working. So there was that big shift. And I think the result of that is, for example, that Kate's children will not be taken for half an hour each day to see Kate and William. They will genuinely be more involved because, you know, they're aware, William especially and Harry, that, you know, their parents' marriage was a disaster and their, yeah. and their upbringing was a disaster because, it, because they weren't involved. Um, I do think, though, that it's it's will always be harder for a spare because, you know, I mean, we know, for example, I know he wasn't the spare, but if we take Edward, for example, who tried to have a, a career as a television producer yeah. and whatever he did he was criticized for using his connections to get work and so that was one of, so i think they you know they they're, they're always trapped it's a gilded cage it's wonderfully gilded but it's always a cage i think the only way it might change is if i, I know charles wants to slim the thing down and i think if he, perhaps if he slimmed it down enough it might be that, you know, like the Queen of the Belgians, you know, she cycle, goes around on her bicycle. It might grab that kind of thing might gradually mean that, you know, younger sons can actually do something else other than, you know, cutting the ribbon to open new museums and all that kind of thing. But I doubt it. I think, you know, when you're that close to the air, you're, you're the spare. I think it will always be very difficult unless the royal family, you know, disappears as, as so many royal fam European royal families disappeared after the First World War. I mean, we don't even know who they are now. They're descendants. They're just, you know, they probably are working as journalists and doctors and teachers. And you mentioned in the book that William and Kate have their rows, like obviously all couples do. Where do you think they stand right now? Do you think that it feels as though they're a little closer since the since they've kind of both had this sustained attack from Harry and Meghan? Do you think that's brought them together? I'm certain that the attack from Harry and Meghan has indeed. It's the sort of, you know, you're, you're never closer 
than when you have a perceived enemy. I'm not sure that enemy is probably too strong a word, but they will feel that, uh, you know, they're not just that they're under attack, but they're, they're, they're more isolated, mm. you know, that they're, they have to be careful. They have to be careful that they sing from the same hymn book, as it were, because there's, there's always this difficulty with someone, you know, who's far enough away to make criticisms and clearly has a taste for making criticisms that seem very unlikely to end. We know, for example, that Megan is now writing her own book. Well, I'm sure William and Kate are, I wouldn't say dreading that, but they're thinking, well, here's going to be more of the same. So I think it probably has pushed them closer together. Um, also, it's probably reduced the amount of stress that they were living under that was making them perhaps, you know, a squabble a bit more than they would otherwise, because, um the relationship between William and Harry when when Harry was still in England, you know, that that was fraught. It was difficult. They're, it's almost like, you know, they've, they're better off being estranged because at least they're not having to, to see each other and pretend to get on. And, you know, it, distance, I think, just, just makes it easier and I'm sure makes William and Kate's lives easier and therefore they'll get on better. You know, we all argue when we're under stress. And yes. I don't think they're under as much stress now. And in Harry's book, he talks a lot about the, uh, obviously there's the stress within the interpersonal relationship between the two brothers, but also the whole of the private office kind of dis- disintegrated into this toxic poisoned atmosphere. Harry talks about it as a poisoned atmosphere and, you know, mutual recriminations between Harry and Meghan and staff and a general and quite widespread not getting on of any <laughs> of anyone and everyone in the private office at Kensington Palace, I think is fair to say, isn't it? Yes, I think the problem is when you've got a team of people who, you know, who deal with your outward facing life, inevitably they're, 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 they're going to be on your side. And I think, you know, you're going to use that team to put your message across. I mean, I, I've sometimes thought that in many ways, the William and Kate and, and Harry and Meghan employing other people I don't think it's always, you know, to the PR people, communications people. I'm not sure it's a good idea because I think it means that, that, you know, they're always firing salvos at each other in a way they probably wouldn't do in the past. You know, maybe 200 years ago, you wouldn't have had a communications team. So the whole thing was was more private. If you fell out, you didn't have a team of people firing rockets at each other. So um, I think that's the problem. And I think inevitably people feel great loyalty to one side or the other. I talked to someone who worked for um, for Meghan and Harry, and he said you couldn't help getting caught up in Meghan's, what was the word he used, Meghan's sort of belief in almost messianic kind of belief in her mission and you see, you got caught up in that and you were really offended when the other side were not being friendly. You know, you really wanted to go and punch them on the nose. <laughs> so I think that's happening on both sides. And then you get people who go slightly beyond their brief and they, you know, they do these. I, I mean, people have done it to me. People have told me things who work for both sides. And you think, well, I'm sure that that hasn't been authorised. They're telling me that because they, you know, they want to sort of, it's one-upmanship. They want to beat the other side at its own game. So the whole thing spirals slightly out of control because it's very personal. Yes. And when you talk about getting caught up in, you mean basically getting swept along and believing the co- Megan's cause is your cause rather than... Um you, you mean that they, they, they were fundamentally on her side and batting for her team and taking the slights towards her as personal slights towards them as well? Exactly, yeah. I mean, I've worked for people where 
if they're very strong-willed, they're very sure of themselves, and they and charismatic. I think Megan is charismatic. Some said you can't help. You become a follower. You become a believer. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, because you know, if someone believes totally in their in their role, their mission in life, it's very hard. You either leave or you get caught up in yeah. that. True. It's almost like being in a cult. You know, you 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 have to. I mean, somebody famous said. You know, I think it was Harry actually said. You know, what Megan wants, Megan gets. Yeah. And I think, you know, she only employed, Tom, Tom Boa said, said this too, you know, that she wouldn't allow any of her friends to talk to him for his book. She wants to control the whole thing. So if you work for her, I, I can imagine it would be impossible unless you really believed in the product. You know, that terrible phrase people used to use, you know, you couldn't be slightly distance from and and uh, try and see it slightly more objectively and calm down. I think you would have to be, you know, you'd have to be caught up in it or you wouldn't be able to work for her. She's not the sort of person I think who would allow, not happily anyway, a contrary view because, you know, we just know that doesn't, it's, she just doesn't. It's it's Megan's way. And you also talk in the book about Archie and Lily's fate because obviously the book is about parenting and it's about children. And you talk about how ambitious Megan is on behalf of Archie and Lily. So what do you think? Do you think we will ever see Archie and Lily grace the red carpet in Hollywood, star in films? Do you think they have a glittering media career ahead of them? I think they're much more likely to have a glittering media career than a glittering royal <laughs> career, <laughs> just because, you know, that will be the massive influence. They're living in America. They're living next door to, you know, film people, celebrities. Um, that'll be their world, you know, and we know that from other um, film people. Their children might struggle a bit, but you, you always find that they're kind of involved at some level with Hollywood. They're friends of the children of other Hollywood stars. If that's where you grow up, that's what you that's what you take in you know they're not they're not over here um stalking in the highlands shooting pheasants at sandringham that will be an alien thing for them uh and i think it's extremely unlikely from the people i've spoken to uh, you know who, who've agreed it's very unlikely that they'll suddenly come back and and take part in the sort of activities that younger royals take part in over here you know they're going to be american through and through but i think that's the way megan wants it and understandably you know i know she apparently she apart from thinking that she would be living in windsor castle when she was first given a cottage in the grounds of kensington palace i mean she was so offended by that deeply offended and even frogmore which she thought would be better she she thought it was sort of a wasteland. <laughs> you know, there was nobody there. There were no shops. You know, I don't know if any. You know, if you've ever been to, uh, I I've been in the grounds of Windsor. It's you know, it's lovely if you like the the damp, grey English countryside. <laughs> That's not Meghan's thing. You know, so I think the children, you know, they will be fully Meganized. You know, Harry's influence will be, I think, relatively minor because he's a lost soul. Mm. And do you think they'll have any uh, any relationship with their cousins, i.e. George, Charlotte and Louis? No, I think a minimal relationship with their cousins, um, because it, unless their parents can repair their relationship, it will be very difficult for the children. How, how will the children do it? I can imagine, you know, one of them might, um, uh, might, you know, whether they're older, they might reach out and think we really need to do something about this. But if they're in the you know, when they get a bit older, become teenagers or 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 young, you know, a bit older in their 20s. I think if they're constantly under the media spotlight, it will be very difficult for them, you know, because everyone will comment on it. It will be, you know, if they suddenly meet up, the press will get hold of it and make a big thing of it. 
And, uh, you know, they'll be back to square one. Not, not in, I mean, I think, too, they're bound to inherit uh, Meghan's uh, loathing of the press. Um, because, you know, how can you, you, you know, the, the influences of your, your parents are, are, are paramount, especially in these early years. I can't see that she'll be able to, you know, give them a more objective view, either of the press, of their lives, of their cousins. You know, I think it'll be siege mentality. You know, we're okay here, but don't go back to England. It's terrible there. The press will tear you apart. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I have one more question before we're going to take a break. So we have heard a lot from Harry um, of him comparing himself to Diana, comparing Meghan to Diana. We've, you know, had this narrative for years and years that, both William and Harry are walking in Diana's footsteps. More recently, if you look at Harry's kind of popularity in both Britain and America, the aftermath of Oprah and of Spare kind of almost looks more like the trajectory of Charles's career in the 1990s. Who do you see Harry as more closely aligned with? I think Harry likes to think that he's very much like his mother in the sense that he's much maligned. But I think his perception of his own history is is at fault because he only looks at his mother's life as something that was damaged by the press. He doesn't see that she was actually brilliant at manipulating the press for her own ends. Her relationship with the press wasn't by any means entirely negative, whereas Harry's is. Um, and I think that's because, um, God forgive me for saying, I think, I think uh, his mother was actually, uh, was actually far more shrewd than Harry. You know, Harry's picked up the Meghan thing about complaining all the time. He simply, you know, he complains about this instead of thinking, well, how can I, you know, it's the classic example. It's a bit like if you get monstered by the tabloids over here. A friend of mine was monstered. So every morning there were there were journalists around the house all the time. So instead of throwing things out of the window at them or turning a hose on them, he made them tea and cake and took it out to them. He developed a really good relationship with them and they wrote really nice things about him. Now, Harry is at the stage where he's throwing rocks at them and, and playing the hose on them, whereas he should make them tea. And that's what his mother did. So I don't think he's as much like his mother as he likes to think. Or if he is, it's just one side. Whereas William, on the other hand, I think actually William reminds me more and more of his mother because I think, you know, he occasionally complains about the press, but it's not a sort of constant stream of complaints. You know, even when the press, I remember they they said the most unkind things about Kate, you know, that her 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 uncle, who's a builder in, in a very poor part of South London, they went on about that. And they said, you know, Tatler magazine, for example, said no one who was anyone would invite um, the Middletons to a party because they were, you know, they weren't even sort of uh, properly upper middle class. They were almost lower middle class, all this kind of stuff. And there was barely a complaint from about this. Well, you could imagine if something equivalent was said about Meghan, she'd be absolutely furious. So I think William and Kate are much better at, at doing a bit of the complaining that their mother perhaps did but also they're, they're better than Harry and Meghan at using the press, trying to get sympathy from the press. So um, 
you know, I think I think they've both got bits of their mother, but I think William's playing a better game than Harry. <laughs> now, Tom, wait there, don't go anywhere. We're going to take a quick break. And to our listeners, before we do, just a reminder to rate and review The Royal Report in Apple Podcasts on Spotify or wherever you get your favourite shows. And when I am back, we have more royal tensions flaring again, this time over Harry and Meghan's UK home, Frogmore Cottage. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Now, Harry and Meghan have had a UK home in Windsor since 2019. It's called Frogmore Cottage. There was about $3.2 million of public money spent renovating it, turning it from a from accommodation for staff into a family home with a nursery for Archie and all the trimmings. Um, Harry and Meghan repaid that money, so they've invested substantial amounts of their own money in it. However, we now hear via reports in The Sun that Charles is going to evict them by as soon as early summer and it may well be given to prince andrew of all people so uh, this obviously is going to have huge ramifications for harry and Meghan because it's not just a home what they got at frogmore cottage was round the clock security frogmore cottage was on it was in windsor home park so it's on the grounds of the royal estate in windsor in the shadow of windsor castle so you're talking armed police uh, you're talking you know all the kind of what might be termed defensive architecture of you know high fences and Difficult to operate drones, specific laws designed to allow the police to actually arrest trespassers, which is not always possible in Britain because in some contexts it's considered a civil offence. If they lose all that, it will be much harder for them to come to Britain. They will have to work out where they're going to stay. And if they wind up in hotels, then they will not be protected by taxpayer-funded metropolitan police officers during their stay. They will be in the hands of their private security firm. Now, um, Harry has made it very clear through his judicial review lawsuit that he feels it is unsafe for him and his family in Britain without metropolitan police bodyguards. And this was seen viscerally as recently as June during the Platinum Jubilee because Harry and Meghan came to Britain they stayed in Frogmore, they were offered police protection on excursions to official events that they had been invited to and they did nothing else because they did not want to step out of Frogmore without Metropolitan Police bodyguards. Um, So that is where the current situation is. Now Tom, what do you think about all this? You mentioned of course in your book that Meghan wanted to, uh, she, she thought that she was going to be living in Windsor Castle um, and was not necessarily impressed with some of the accommodation that they had in Britain. 
Yes. Um, when they were, when after they first married, they had a small, very beautiful cottage in the grounds of Kensington Palace, as everyone knows. But it, it really was a shock, for me, a terrible shock for Meghan, because although it, much of the interior of this cottage survived, it had been designed by Christopher Wren, the interior still had some Christopher Wren bits and pieces. I don't think she thought that was a good thing at all. I think she'd like to have scraped the inside and, and made it look super modern. Um, so that was the first disappointment, because, you know, as you say she had thought that she would be living in in Windsor Castle and then I think moving to um, Frogmore Cottage I mean we say cottage it's actually a big house by most people's standards it's no cottage certainly considerably bigger than the cottage they had in the grounds of Kensington uh, Palace but I think this this business of of evict, evicting them is a very strong word, um, but I think Charles is is really trying to send a signal because that house, um, you know, it costs a lot of money, even though um, Harry paid for the refurbishment, but it's just sitting empty most of the time, you know. And I think it's Charles saying, "Well, look, we, we're not just going to keep this for when you, even though it's yours, it just doesn't look very good." And in a way, I think this is Charles getting. Not quite his revenge, but it's a sort of slap on the wrist for his wayward son, you know, because uh, um, Harry really is, you know, he, uh, Charles is very upset by all the things that uh, Harry has said in his book and uh, and in the Oprah um, interview. And I think this is Charles' way of saying, well, look, look, you know, we're, we're not going to sit here and just accept everything and you can come back and live in this house whenever you like. Uh, so, you know, he's got one eye on telling off um, Harry. And uh, there's another part of him, I think, I think he feels it will appeal to the British public, you know, because the perception in the UK, I think, is that Harry's a bit of a spoiled brat. And, um, you know, this is Charles's way of saying to the British public, look, you know, we don't want the damage to the royal family's image that Harry is causing. So I'm going to sort of slap him down, you know, and I think I think Charles will be praised for it, you know, for, for not continually indulging this child who, who keeps biting the hand that feeds him. And what do you think this means for Harry and Meghan's relationship with Britain? Do you think we will still see them come to Britain or do you think that without Frogmore as a base, they just simply won't come to the UK at all? I think they simply won't come. No, I mean, they'll come for the coronation, probably. Um, they may come occasionally, but I, I, I think they're probably, you know, I don't think they're saying that they're worried about security and that that's just something that they're saying so that they can keep Frogmore and, and keep being funded and so on and so on. I think they genuinely are worried about their security because you can imagine some lunatic might uh, you know, take a pop shot at them or something because they are such prominent characters. But then another part of me thinks that in America, that's been even, you know, with about 30 million guns distributed to virtually everyone over the age of five, um, there must be a much greater risk. Um, so I, I, I think, yeah, to go back to your question, I don't think they'll come that often. I mean, and I think that Charles's decision is almost a recognition of that fact. It's a bit like, you know, when Edward VIII went to live in France, you know, he was kind of hoping that he'd be offered a, a, a rather special role and, and nothing happened. So, he, you know, he came back to the UK less and less and less. Um, you know, rather like King Lear gave away his power, but somehow thought he could still, you know, have it. And I think Harry still feels he might be living in America and he might 
um, you know, be the spare. But I, he still feels he's very special. He's part of the royal family. And this will be a real shock to him, I think, because it's pushing him away. Even though he wants to be pushed away, pushed away to some extent, I don't think he's going to be happy about it. And do you think, so let's say Harry and Meghan do all but cut off visits to Britain. Do you think we'll then see Charles and William going out to see Harry in America? Or is this basically full estrangement? The royal family specialise in very, very long feuds. If you, if you think, <laughs> if you think that um, uh, Queen Victoria never forgave her son, later Edward VII, over a period of about 40 years, she never forgave him for causing, as she saw it very unfairly, the death of Albert. She never, ever forgave him for that. Um, and, it, and, and in the same way, um, I think this will happen now with... With Harry, you know, the fallout between William and um, and Harry, I, I think it will be very difficult. It will be an intergenerational feud. You know, I, I think it's very unlikely that they'll be comfortable with each other. It'll be like the Queen Mother, you know, she finally met Mrs. Simpson <laughs> about 50 years after um, she'd first met her. And that was only when, when Edward VIII died, you know. So I can see this going on for a long time. And again, I think... They might try and have a private meeting because I think William and Harry were close. You know, they, they were close because of all the terrible things happening around them when they were younger. Uh, but unfortunately, that glue disappeared later on. Um, so I think they might try and meet privately at some point. But how can you do that if you remember? And you need all the security. It'd be very difficult, you know, and they won't want the press to immediately jump on this. So I think you've got that as a barrier and you've got the sort of natural inclination of the royal family to, you know, to be quite unforgiving. I mean, they are quite unforgiving. People forget that. You know, they you know, when when, for example, famously, um, uh, Elizabeth um, Nanny Crawford, she was very famous. Uh, everyone knows she wrote a book which was very innocent about bringing up Elizabeth and Margaret. And for the next 50 years after till she died, no one in the royal family would ever speak to her again. You know, so they, they, these feuds can, can last they, forever. They and I wouldn't be surprised if that happens with William and, and Harry. Now, Tom, thank you very much for joining us. It's been fantastic having you on the show. And do, I do wish you all the best of luck with the book. Thank you very much. I'm going to take one more quick break, but before I do, a reminder to follow me on Twitter. I'm at Jack underscore Royston. You will find all my latest stories for Newsweek. Uh, When I'm back, the King's seemingly innocuous meeting with the President of the European Commission has landed him in hot water. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep, the application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs, just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Now, King Charles has found himself in the middle of a diplomatic scuffle after he had a face-to-face meeting with Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission president, for those who don't know. 
it happened in the shadow of Brexit negotiations. Yes, that's right. You heard me correctly. There are still Brexit negotiations happening in 2023. It probably feels like that issue should have been wrapped up a long time ago. However, it hasn't been. There's all kinds of problems to do with the uh, Irish border. And the current government has been trying to resolve them and come up with effectively a better Brexit deal. So this was all going on and it looked like the negotiations were coming to an end and a successful end at that. And a meeting was scheduled between Charles and uh, and von der Leyen. And it was originally going to happen over the weekend and then it got pushed back to Monday, when, at which point it went ahead. Now, why is this controversial? It probably sounds quite routine. She's a visiting diplomat. That's the kind of thing that royals do. However, there is some opposition in Britain to the deal. Um, from specifically a Irish political party, the DUP. It's a a unionist party, so kind of pro-union with the United Kingdom. Um, And also, separately, among the kind of Brexiteer factions within the Conservative Party, um, who are all pro-monarchy and felt that Charles was being used almost as a human shield to kind of force them to back this, to back Rishi Sunak's Brexit deal. Now, more kind of in the weeds of British politics, but their man was obviously Boris Johnson. He was the one who said he was going to get Brexit done. They have a little bit of opposition to what Rishi Sunak's now doing. But for our purposes, the more interesting aspect of it is just what this means for Charles. Now, Everybody anticipated that King Charles's era might be defined by this question of whether he was too political and whether he would be able to keep his own political opinions about the world private. Now, this is probably, in all honesty, not a case of Charles's political uh, ideology or values bubbling up over the surface. It is perhaps more a case of the government of the day kind of shoehorning him into a situation that was just slightly too controversial for a monarch to take part in. Um, what it means, though, is that the, there is now greater pressure, I think, on Charles's relationship with government and relationship with the prime minister, particularly because there has been a bit of blame and counter-blame between the palace and the foreign office in terms of who actually takes responsibility for the fact this meeting went ahead. The palace have said that they acted on the advice of government and the government have said that effectively it was always Charles's decision in the end. The government may wish to think through that carefully, however, because from Charles's point of view, he is going to have to think very carefully about all the advice they give him. Um, So if Rishi Sunak wants Charles to take his advice in future, he may perhaps want to take slightly more responsibility than has been taken so far. And for the king, I think he'll get away with it on this occasion. I don't think anybody will hold it against him, not least of all because the DUP and the Brexit wing of the Conservative Party are both very kind of pro-monarchy constituencies of people and therefore they will tend to blame the government rather than blaming Charles. But if you roll a dice once, you may well roll a six. But if you roll that dice over and over and over again, then you are going to roll a one eventually. And so for Charles, I think he just needs to make sure that he isn't repeatedly getting put in politically explosive situations from here on out. And that is it for this episode of The Royal Report. Be sure to join me every week when I visit the latest royal headlines, embark on some royal deep dives and riff on all things royal. Until next time, I'm Jack Royston. Thanks for listening, everyone, and a curtsy to you all. Have you-
After being a staple in American media for over 90 years, Newsweek now brings you an exceptional lineup of podcasts. The debate. They'll recognize how these policies aren't working. They'll feel the pain and they'll change their behavior. The Josh Hammer Show. Restore the principles and the political paradigms of the American founding. The Crystal Knight Show. Just because officers are black doesn't mean that the policing system still isn't inherently racist. Fast women. Chevy's actually doing really well and Honda's really not. Wow. She's like the opposite of most people's perception of them. It is. The parting shot. Every year when the new nominations are announced, I get this excited, nostalgic feeling and it brings out that little kid in me who just loved movies. The Royal Report. Harry and Meghan's head of comms has announced they now move forward to their kind of future outside the royal family. Newsweek Podcasts. New episodes drop weekly. Download or listen now at Newsweek.com or wherever you get your podcasts.